Uh, I, I know that we have an intergenerational gathering today. All of the kids are in uh, with us. Uh, so I was wondering if I could have the kids help me out with the first part of this message. So can, can the kids, if you're bold enough and courageous enough, come on up here. It'd be great to have you come up. <laughs> or even if you're not. Come on up, Jacqueline. Yep. Yeah. You're bold enough. Oh, anybody. You guys can come up. Sure. Come on up. Here we go. Any others out there? Hiding away? No? So we got the Knight family. That's all right. That's all right. So last call for any kids. Here we go. Okay, that's all right. That's okay. We can do this. We can do this. Thanks for helping out, you guys. Appreciate that. Okay, so... We're going to be talking today about what it means to, be, to fear God, okay? And you're going to help, help us all understand that a little bit better. What are some things that you think kids are afraid of? Spiders. spiders. Yeah. Anybody else out there afraid of spiders? <laughs> we got freaked out by a spider in our family room last night. So, okay, yep, a spider. Great, Travis. What else? What, are, what else might kids be afraid of? Uh, bullies. Bullies. Okay, sure. Yeah, I can see that. Needles at the doctor. Needles at the doctor. Yeah, okay, I get that. What else? Dentist appointment. Dentist appointment, needles in the mouth. Sure, yeah, that'll do it. What else? A doctor's appointment? Oh. Yeah, sure, doctors. Yeah, everybody should be scared of doctors, yeah. What is it? Tarantulas, yeah, oh yeah, for sure, Trenton, yeah, you betcha. Anything else? Yep, Jacqueline? Never mind, okay, being on stage in front of people, right, we can be scared of that, right, absolutely, yep, anything else? Okay. Yeah, sure. They can be they can be afraid of that too. That's right. So I you can find anything on the internet these days, right? So I found a list of the five things that children were afraid of when I was a little kid. Want to hear what's on the list? Yeah, sure. Okay, because some of the things are different. Number one is animals. Animals. Can you would you ever be afraid of an animal? Oh depends on what kind of animal. What if it was a rhinoceros? Yeah, yeah, you'd ride it. Yeah, you would. <laughs> this kid, that kid is fearless for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what about this one? Because this, this one I think is, 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 a, is something that people can really be afraid of. Being in a dark room, in the dark. Afraid of the dark? Yeah. Sure, yeah, being, being in a dark room, that can be, that can be scary. Uh, here's another one, heights. Being up in a high place. Anybody afraid of heights? You see, you guys are normal kids. You're normal kids. Things haven't changed that, haven't changed that much. You're not. Good for you. Um, strangers. Strangers is another thing, right? Anybody here afraid of strangers? It depends. If it's someone that my parents don't know, I'm sort of afraid of them. But if it's someone my parents know that they're showing me to, I'm not afraid. And, and a stranger, yeah, and a, a stranger is somebody you don't know as opposed to somebody who's just strange. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We, gotta, we have to make that distinction for sure. Uh, and last one is loud noises. Loud noises. Yeah. 
Trenton didn't move. He didn't move. I tell you, the kid is a rock. All right, so, so um, we're going to be talking about fear, but you know what? Look up here, because the Bible has a lot of different words for fear, a lot of different words. Now, you don't have to know those words, but, but you're going to help us understand some. Okay, I want, every, I want you guys to look out here, because we're going to put your acting skills to, to a test. Acting skills, okay? All right, here we go. So here are some different words for fear, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to, to act out, to demonstrate, right, what that looks like. Right? You're going to demonstrate what it looks like, Trenton, right? Okay. Here we go. So one of the words is distressed. What's it look like to be distressed? <laughs> or worried. Worried. What's it look like to be worried? There you go. There's a, that's a bit of worry. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a bit of worry. Okay, here's another one. Another one is anxious. That's like worried but up a few notches. There you go. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. And one more is to be afraid or scared. Okay. Okay. And now let's wrap it up again. What about terrified? You're terrified. <laughs> ah! All right. We've, we finally, we finally got a reaction out of Trenton. Way to go, man. All right, so th there's a lot of different words, and we're going to be talking about what these words mean and what it means to fear God. Which word does it really mean for us to think about when we fear God? Thanks for your help, you guys, and we're going to continue in a couple minutes. So I had a bit of an unexpected experience with, uh, with this message when I was preparing it. When I uh, was looking over the questions, and we as a staff were looking over the questions that the congregation had submitted, uh, this one at first didn't really jump out at me, and we had selected uh, four questions that we were going to preach about. But when we came back to this one a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I was looking at them again, this, this question, how do we fear God? What does it mean to fear God? Really spoke to me, and, and so I decided that we would do this one, and I began to kind of dig into it. And this unexpe unexpected experience that I had is as soon as I read the question, my mind immediately went to Proverbs 9.10. A passage which you probably know really, really well. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And the reason that that came up to me so quickly, and it took me, just, it took me right down memory lane as I thought about it, because I remembered sometime, I don't know how old I was, I might have been maybe 9 or 10 years old. Are there any 9 or 10-year-olds here, of, of the kids who are here? Jacqueline, how old are you? You're 10. So I was probably your age when this happened. And I remember... I, you know, I'd long forgotten it, but I remembered it, and, and it just took me back to this time. And I remember being at, at church, and, and I don't remember if it was a youth or, or event or whatever it was, or it might have been on a, on a, at a worship service, but, but the, the preacher, the speaker, was talking about this passage. And it was one, one of those ones that we had to memorize as kids. Uh, and I, I just remember somehow this verse got lodged in my brain and in my heart. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I had long forgotten that. As a teenager, you know, you've probably heard me tell my story. My, uh, my family went through a really, really difficult time. My mother died. Uh, my family blew up. Uh, I, I, left, I left home. I, left, I dropped out of school and uh, was really going through a really rough time. And for five years, I was kind of on the lam. 
I'd run away from God, I'd run away from my family, I'd run away from everything, basically. And I was 21 years old, and I remember I had uh, finished, I'd put myself through high school, and, and I, uh, I had gotten, um, for, all, for any parents who have kids who are struggling academically, here's, a, here's some, a good news story for you. I graduated high school with a D average. My average was 54. And, uh, and I was 19 years old when I finished high school. Um, I, f- I got out of high school and I, I got a job working at a concrete block making factory where I lasted for a little while and, and after doing manual labor, f- labor for a few years I realized my life was going nowhere and so I actually got into university at University of Regina on what they called a faint hope clause. It was actually called adult learning. But it was a faint hope clause. And what it meant is that they were willing to give me one semester and if I could get a C average in one semester then they would let me enroll. Right? And here's the good news part for all of you struggling students or parents with kids. I now have four degrees. So, when you, when you set your mind to it, right, you can do anything. Um, but I was in a bad place. I was in a rough, in a rough place. But I remember I was, uh, I was living at a, at a buddy's house. I was renting a room there, and I had started university. And I remember sitting in a chair in the living room. And uh, I remember this chair because we had carved a hole. It was a flat, big armchair, and we'd carved a hole for our beer bottle to sit in. And I was sitting in this chair. I don't remember if I had a beer bottle or not. Probably did. But I was sitting in there, and, and I was sitting in that chair, and I was thinking about my life. And I was thinking, you know, where am I going? What, what am I doing? What's, what's it all about? Where, what's, what's it going? And it was at that moment that God came and found me again. And God spoke to me in that moment. And I remember it clear as day, and it was clearly God speaking to me. I knew it was God speaking to me. I hadn't talked to him for years. I hadn't paid any attention to him for years. And suddenly this voice in my head said, Kevin, you know if you want your life to count, it needs to be built upon me. And that changed my life. That completely changed my life. That experience was so real, so profound that I, I, I got down on my knees, I repented and asked God to, to be my Savior, and six weeks later I was baptized. Because the truth of that reality, that, that if for my life to count, it needed to be built upon God, somewhere in this, in this reserve of who I was, this spoke to me so profoundly and resonated with me so deeply that this was true, that I was willing to completely uproot my life and change my life and change almost everything about my life in order to live in this new reality of this newfound faith this newfound conviction I had that if my life was going to matter, it had to be built upon God. And that's, what, I don't know, 36 years ago now. But here's the most profound experience. It happened this week as I was looking at this passage and thinking about it, and and the Spirit took me right back, and I journeyed all through that, and I realized that it all goes back to that moment when I was 9 or 10 years old, and that speaker or pastor taught me this verse and said the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord and somehow that verse got inside of me at that age and I believed it it would take years before God would resurrect it and bring it to life and begin to to water it and make it grow but the truth 
and the power of this proverb, of this verse, have been speaking into my life ever since that time. Ever since that time. I've learned a lot, uh, you know, about what this is talking about since then. And I'll just take a couple of minutes here to wrap up this part of my story. But, but to try and understand what, what we're getting at when we talk about the fear of the Lord, um, maybe it helps to look at other passages. Other, you know, so in Psalm 1, we're not going to look there, for, but Psalm 1, David immediately lays out the fact that there's two ways of living in this world. There always have been. There's no more than two. There's no in-between. There's only two ways of living. There is the righteous way and the wicked way. And there's no in-between. It's one or the other. We're either following God or we're not. And if we're following God, then we're on the righteous path. And if we're not, we're on the wicked path. And there's no middle road. And so here's, look at, look at what Psalm 36 verses 1 and 2 and 4 say. Um, where the psalmist writes, an oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. And I, I don't, I, sometimes I just, I, I just feel like I, I, I don't have the words to help, help you understand or to bring across to you the, the depth of what the Spirit is saying here. That it was, on the, it was on the psalmist's heart as he thought about life and he thought about the world and he thought about his life and he thought about the people that he knew. His, his heart was bursting and he just said, this is, just, this is so true, I have, to, I have to tell you. Maybe poets are best able to kind of capture this kind of, of passion or pathos where truth and, and passion inter, inter, intermix. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For in their own eyes they flatter themselves too much to detect their sin. They commit themselves to a sinful course and, and do not uh, reject, or sorry, and, do, and reject, do not reject what is wrong. Sorry, and do not reject what is wrong. That's the definition of the path of the wicked. And it helps us understand the anti- that it is the antithesis of the path of the righteous. There's no fear of God. And what is the fear of God? If there's no fear of God, it means we don't care about our sin. We're not worried about it. We just do as we please. There are no consequences. We just live the way we want to live. And I've lived like that. When I gave up, you know, when I walked away from God and, and you know, as a teenager, I mean, I didn't care. Somebody asked me one time if I, if I remember, even remember what it was like to be a non-Christian. And I said, absolutely. Because I remember a time in my life where I didn't know God and I didn't care. And that's an unbeliever. That's an unbeliever. And so the psalmist says, you know, the wicked, there's no fear of God before them. They just do as they please. They don't care about the consequences. They don't think about their sin. They don't think about any of that. And so the, constant, the other way then, the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord is to live the other way. It's to live the other way. To live with the awareness of God. To live with the reality of God. A.W. Tozer says this, he says, When people no longer fear God, they transgress his laws without hesitation. The fear of consequences is no deterrent when the fear of God is gone. And many of us don't. We had a funeral in here yesterday uh, for Russell Wilby. And you know, one of the things that's happening in our culture more and more and more is people don't even think about the afterlife. Now, that wasn't the case. He died a believer and we had a wonderful 
event here yesterday. And thank you to all the forest workers who helped make that happen. The family and the guests were absolutely blown away by your care and compassion and love for them. So well done. And we were able to share the hope of the gospel and the, and the, the meaning of the cross with everybody who was gathered. But if you go to a lot of funerals today, they're called celebrations of life. And they're all about how the person lived and remembering the person's life. And there's really very little mention about what comes next. Because people don't want to think about it. They don't think about it. And so they live their lives as if today is the only moment. That the present is all that matters. And they just hang the consequences for the future. And that can be disastrous for eternity. You see, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. To have that awareness that God is real, that God is. And that it matters how we live our lives. I learned that as a 9 or 10 year old. And the power of that truth stayed with me even when it went dormant. God was able to touch it and resurrect it and bring it back. And I have been blessed by that reality my whole life. God is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So I want to pray for Jacqueline as a, as a nine-year-old. Nine or ten, did you say? Ten, sorry, ten-year-old. Do not want to minimize that. As a ten-year-old. And any, anybody else out there who's on, on the edge, and maybe you're, you know what, maybe you're in university, maybe you're a university-age person, you're at that stage that I was at at age 21, wondering what the meaning of life is and where you're going and what it's all about. I want to pray for you. And I want to pray that this verse, Proverbs 9.10, would be burned deeply into your spirit, into your soul, into your mind, into your brain, so that the truth of it, the power of it, will reign over you for the rest of your life. Because it is true. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It is the foundation of life. To live your life with the reality that God is and that it matters. That is the fear of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I am blessed. I am so blessed. Father, even when I didn't know I was being blessed, you were blessing me. Even when I didn't know that you were watching over me, you were watching over me. And I am so grateful. I can think of many times in my life, Father, where I could have absolutely made a disaster of it. But you saved me from that. And you brought me through and you brought me to a place where you could make yourself known to me and I could begin to live for you with knowledge. And I am so grateful. Father in heaven, I'm not perfect. None of us are. It's not, that's not what the fear of God is. The fear of God is to know you are real and to believe and to have that relationship with you. And I am so grateful for that. Father, I thank you for the simplicity and also the profundity of this verse. And I pray that for Jacqueline and for all the others in this congregation who are, who are learning what it is, Lord, to live for you, I pray that this verse would have power in their life. Holy Spirit, would you use these words in their lives just as you've used them in mine all these years so that one day they'll be able to look back and know that they have lived a life that has glorified you and has honored you because you made yourself known to them. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's one more question that we want to think about in this 
in this question of what does it mean to fear God and how do we fear God? And I want to give you just a second to think about it, and then I'll, I'll let you, a few of you volunteer answers. Is there ever a time where you or I should be scared of God? Is there ever a time where you or I should dread God? Is there ever a time where you or I should be terrified of God? So I'd like you to think about that just for a second, and I'll take two or three responses from you. And I want you to wait till I bring the mic so everybody can hear you. So I'll put you on the spot. Okay, go ahead. Who wants to venture an answer to that? Barb. I believe that there is a time that we should be fearful and dread God. And that's when we are sinning and we know we are sinning and we are deliberately sinning. And we know that we are outside of his path. And I believe that we should know that we should fear and tremble because God will realize that. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Yeah, Mike. I believe uh, that uh, when we, if we stand before God without checking his sin, that's when we're terrified. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anybody else? Where? Oh. This is Marion Wells, everybody. Not to put her on the spot or anything like that, but... Um, I think we should fear God when, you th- when like, you're at a point where you're like, oh, I think I can just do this on my own. Like, if you're a Christian, but then you're like, oh, I can do it on my own, or I have a better plan, then that's when you should fear God, because you're kind of going back words into thinking you can do it on your own. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thank you for that, everybody. So I want you to take a look at this verse. Not that one, but the one that's coming. There we go. So this says, Your wonders, O Lord, are praised by the heavens. Your faithfulness, too, in the assembly of the holy beings. For who in the skies can equal the Lord can compare with the Lord among the divine beings, a God greatly dreaded in the council of holy beings, held in awe by all around him. Now, I looked that verse up in the Tanakh, which is the English translation of the Jewish scriptures. And this, that's actually the, the way it reads in the Tanakh, because it reads a little bit differently in some of the different English translations. But that word, a God greatly dreaded in the council of the holy beings, is the only place in the Old Testament, where this word, aratz, is used. And the word means to be utterly afraid, terrified. Sheer terror. So what's it talking about here? Well, I think it's interesting in the context of what he's saying here that he's, it's talking about the praise of God and the wonders of God. And it's saying, it's saying that those that are in the heavenly realms who can see God for who he is and how he is, it strikes sheer terror into their hearts. There are numerous places in the scriptures which tell us of God's terrible might and, and wrath and power. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us that our God is a consuming fire. The prophets who came into contact with God like Isaiah or others, when they, when they realized that they were in the presence of God, they, they bewailed and bemoaned and they, they, they believed, 
I'm undone. I'm in the presence of this, this magnificence, and I'm about to be undone. When we read in the book of Revelation, the elders and, and those that worship God at the throne, they throw themselves, they cast their crowns at his feet and sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And there is that aspect of God's nature, of God's personhood, which ought to strike a holy terror into our hearts. C.S. Lewis, Lewis, when he was writing the Chronicle of Narnia, I thought captured this well uh, in his story where he talks about, and you've got the, the family, and you've got the two sisters, Lucy and Susan, and they've arrived in Narnia, and they've met Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're learning about Aslan, and they're on their way to meet Aslan, and so they're having this conversation about who this Aslan is, this mighty warrior king of Narnia. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are telling them, and, and they, at one point in the conversation, they come to realize that Aslan, this great king, is actually, he's not a man, he's a lion. And so they, Susan asks, is he, is, is he then quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. And that's God. That's our God. Of course he's not safe, but he is good. He is good. To Isaiah, when Isaiah realized that he was about to be undone in God's presence, God had a seraphim take the coal from the altar, you remember, and bring it to him, and he said, here, touch this to your lips. Mr. Beaver went on to say that anyone who came into the presence of Aslan without their knees shaking was either more courageous than he was or a fool. This is God we're talking about. The fear of God. A God who, unless we are under His grace and are extended His grace, will be our utter and eternal undoing. Who brooks no unholiness, who has no patience for sin and is always utterly just. So which of us would be able to stand in his presence? None. Not one of us. I can't, you can't. Not one of us can stand in his presence except for the means by which he's made it possible. Jesus Christ. We were talking at the funeral yesterday about how the cross is the greatest symbol of love that there is. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And Jesus said, no one's taking my life from me. I am laying it down. No greater love has anyone than to lay down his life for his friends. That's, that, that's what that cross represents. The love of God. And when we come under that cross, when we come to that cross, and when we come to that shed blood of Jesus, God says, I'll accept you. I'll receive you. I'll forgive your sin. I'll wash you in the blood of my son. And that's what makes us able to stand in his presence. 
How then do we live in the fear of God? Well, it is to believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, as it says in Hebrews chapter 11. I love what Micah says, the prophet Micah, and he says, you know, what, what is God expected of us? What is God asking of us? Nothing more than to do justly, to love mercy, mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. To live in the fear of God is to put God in his place in your life and realize that he is God, he is Savior, he is Lord, and I am not. And to live every day of my life from that place is what it is to fear God. To have a healthy awe of God, a healthy respect for God. But I don't need to live in terror of God because of Jesus. Because I am accepted by God, not because of me or anything that I have said or done. I'm accepted by God because of what Jesus has done in my place. And that's how God set it up. And to live in the fear of God is to live humbly with our God every day of our lives. I'll call the ushers forward to service communion. As we think about that, I wanted to just share something that I read in Exodus. I've been reading in Exodus in my morning um, devotional times. And it's not the easiest kind of reading, but I'm, it's, I'm reading about the, establish, the establishment of the tabernacle and the priesthood and, and the worship of Yahweh at the, at, uh, after Sinai as God was establishing his, his nation. And of course, we know from the New Testament that there's, there's such rich imagery here because these things were all shadows of what was to be filled in Jesus and come after Jesus. And so I was struck by the institution of the priesthood that we read in Acts, or sorry, in, in Exodus chapter uh, 28 and 29. And they had, you know, these great robes, uh, you know, breastplates and robes and all these sashes, you know, all this kind of stuff. When you read through it, like I said, it's a, it, you kind of get bogged down, but if you, if you try to nuance the details, you realize there's a, a real richness there. And the tabernacle had already been set up and the presence of God was with them and they were doing these sacrifices in front of the tabernacle and all these things. And now the time had come, everything was ready and Aaron and his sons were brought forward so that they could be established as high priest and priest over Israel forever. And Exodus 29 takes us through the consecration of Aaron and his sons. Numerous sacrifices are made uh, at, the, at, the, uh, at the altar in preparation for this. At one point, the blood from the animals is taken and it's put, in, it's put on the right earlobe of, of Aaron and his sons and on his right thumb and on his right toe. Scholars kind of debate that and wonder, but most seem to think it was because the, the idea of a priest was that a priest had need to have his ear open to God and the people, his hand dedicated to doing the work of God and his feet committed to going where God sent him. And so that was part of the consecration of the priesthood, to remind him that a priest stood between God and the people and had a responsibility that went both ways. And then the time came, the moment came for them to be consecrated, to begin their work as priests. And we're told this. Take the ram for the ordination 
and cook the meat in a sacred place. At the entrance to the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons are to eat the meat of the ram and the bread that is in the basket. So they had had numerous sacrifices and they were all done according to the, to the law, the way it was prescribed. At one point there was special bread that was made and offered and some of that was used in the sacrifice. And now they've got it all set up and, and here at the, at the front of the tabernacle they are, to, they are to partake in the eating of this meat and of this bread. They're to eat the offerings by which atonement was made for their ordination and consecration. No one else may eat because they are sacred. And if any of the meat of the ordination ram or bread is left over until morning, burn it up. It must not be eaten because it is sacred. They were to eat. They were to eat and partake in the offering of atonement that had been made for them. You see, even before they could begin their work as priests, they had to receive the atonement that came through the sacrifice. In a few minutes, you and I are going out those doors as priests, as a kingdom of priests, God's priests in that world. And before we can do that, we need to eat of this sacrifice because this is what atones for us. This is what atones for you and I so that you and I can do that, so that you and I can be that as God sends us. And in my journal, as I read this, I, I, I journaled and I wrote about it and I said, here we have early on at the, foot, at the foot of Mount Sinai a foreshadowing of the Eucharist, of the bread and the blood of Jesus that would become the sacrifice for all of us and all of humankind and all of time. Let's pray for the elements and then the ushers will serve them. Heavenly Father, we are your people, a people called by your name, a people called to a holy vocation, consecrated, Lord, um, consecrated through the presence of your Holy Spirit, through the new birth that your Spirit gives. We are no longer merely human. We are your people. And we are a people, Lord, that are called a kingdom of priests. Because we, serving under the high priest of Jesus, are meant to have a priestly function in the world that you have made. To be listening to you and listening to our neighbors and our co-workers and our schoolmates. And through prayer and through ministry, to be bringing you and them together in whatever way that we can. Lord, we're eager for that work. But we pause at this moment Remembering, Lord, that the only reason we can undertake that work is because what you have done for us. That the atonement has been made for us. That we, Lord, know what it is to be in need. We know what it is to be lost. We know what it is to be without you. We know what it is to live our lives without the fear of the Lord. But you have changed that. You came, you found us, you sought us out. You made us your own. You, you led us to Jesus. You gave us your spirit. You gave us your word. You gave us your church. You gave us yourself. And all of this is we are reminded of, Lord, through the, the blood and the flesh of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we take of the communion today, we do ask that you would bless these elements and consecrate them for the holy purpose which they serve today of reminding us and taking us back into that, 
into the depth of that relationship that we have with you, that we are yours because of what Jesus did on the cross. In the breaking of his body and in the pouring out of his blood, we have forgiveness of sins and communion with you and with one another. And so, Lord, as we take today, Holy Spirit, would you cause these things to burn deeply in our hearts so that when we go out those doors in a few minutes' time, we don't forget who we are and the mission that you have sent us to fulfill in the power of your Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.